Oh, by the way, uh, I'm Nathan, Nathan Wagnon, and uh, I serve on the equipping team here. I'm the men's equipping coordinator, so um, by way of introduction. Hey, uh, it was interesting, you mentioned something there at the, be- at the beginning of his, uh, you know, the few songs that he played. He, he read uh, the Great Commission. You guys familiar with this verse, this passage? Um, Go and make disciples, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. And teach him to obey everything that I've commanded you. And, and then uh, what's interesting is, uh, and I'm, uh, I was actually surprised that you pointed it out. Um, so I'm grateful for that. But there's a, um, there's a little word there uh, called a demonstrative particle. <laughs> you know, <laughs> the heck is a demonstrative particle? Um, in English, we translate it, uh, behold. Um, it's, it's this little Greek word. Uh, called idu, and it's, it's like, uh, it's, a, it's an emphasis marker. And what's fascinating about it is a lot of times we read the Great Commission and, and uh, we, we, we hyper-focus on the go and make disciples of all the nations, and we hyper-focus on the mission and the, hey, go baptize and go teach obedience, right? And, uh, and what's interesting and, and the fascinating thing about the commission is that the, the emphasis marker is not on the mission, the emphasis marker is on the fact that God is with us. Right? This is a deep truth um, that, that we're going to focus on today um, as we look at James uh, 5. So, so, Zach, thanks for pointing that out to us. Um, all right, let's look at uh, James chapter 5. We're in verses 7 through 12 today. And uh, to, to set us up, I want to remind us of the context because... Anytime you, come to, anytime you come to the text and you're looking at any passage in Scripture, um, you always start here. Right? Now, obviously, pray, and you know, I don't want to minimize prayer. I mean, you pray and you ask God uh, for wisdom because, like Jesus told us as his disciples, he says, hey, there's only one teacher, right, and you're not him. <laughs> so uh, Jesus is reminding us that, that uh, I'm the teacher. And so you acknowledge that and you submit uh, to that, but then the next thing you do is you go to the context because a lot of times we um, we just like to cherry pick stuff out of the text and throw it at each other like like uh, Bible ninjas. You know, we got these ninja stars and we're like, oh, this this passage just fits, boom, you know, and and be better, brother. You know, <laughs> it's like ah. <clears throat> um, so uh, make sure we're not uh, make sure we're doing appropriate uh, Bible uh, a Bible study and we're actually uh, keeping the text in its context and so. Uh, James is an interesting book because, uh, just to remind you, by way of context, so, so Jesus is executed and then he uh, is, is raised from the dead, right? Go put that in your pipe and smoke it, right? So Jesus raises from the dead and then ascends to the, to the right hand of the Father and then the church um, pretty much immediately begins to be persecuted. And under this persecution, which um, the Roman emperor at the time was a guy named Caligula, which if you don't know about this dude... A little bit crazy, all right? And his attempt to push kind of this Eastern mysticism type religion um, put, uh, put in danger the, the early church. And so he's persecuting broadly in the Roman Empire and then actually in Judea, um, the, the Herod, so um, Herod's son um, and one of Herod's sons, uh, Herod Agrippa, was the Herod at the time, and he is persecuting the, peop- the, the church in Judea. So there's this broad persecution, and then there's a centralized persecution in Judea. And so the church is sitting there going, hey, um, we're, we're literally dying. 
for, for our uh, discipleship to Jesus. And so they scatter. Um, the church uh, scatters all over uh, Judea. They, they scatter into Asia Minor. They scatter up into, uh, even into Rome. And, and uh, you, we see this in Acts chapter 18, uh, verse 2, where uh, uh, the, the, uh, Luke is writing and recording the, the history of these things. And Caligula, actually, because Christianity had become established in Rome, um, Caligula drives the Christians out of Rome. And so they're losing their homes, they're losing their jobs, they're, losing, they're being oppressed. Um, actually, one of the extra-biblical references, one of the potential, it's a possible reference, not concrete, but one of the extra-biblical uh, allusions to Christianity is by a Roman historian named Suetonius. You guys ever heard of this dude before? All right. he, uh, uh, he, and he alludes to Caligula's expulsion of the Christians from Rome. So, so he actually says, uh, uh, since the Jews constantly made disturbances at the instigation of Crestus, Caligula expelled them from Rome. And so you, you, we see even from extra-biblical um, literature that, that there's a, a persecution going on here. And this is not just like, uh, hey, are you a Christian? You know, all right, then you're going to die for your faith. Kind of like we're seeing right now, right, in the Middle East with the Islamic State. Um, this was a... Um, this was also, uh, it, it was not just a physical persecution in the fact that I'm losing my life. This is also a perse- an, an, an economic persecution. And, and for a lot of these people, the economic persecution was almost as severe, and, and if, if not more severe, than losing your life, right? You lose your life, you're dead. If, if you have economic persecution and there's wicked people who are oppressing you and they're not giving you a job and they're taking your home away from you and, and they're really stripping you of, of, of a lot of your identity as, as people. And so um, if this is the case, then, then the temptation for you as an early Christian is what? Hey, how do I get myself into a spot where I, I have a home, I have a job? I'm not constantly like looking for how I'm going to put food on the table for my family, right? This is a um, this is a really uh, this is a really tough time for the early church, and so um, obviously the church leaders in Jerusalem acknowledge this; they know what's going on, and out of this situation, um, you have the the book of James, and James is writing to the scattered church to um, both. Uh, exhort them, encourage them, warn them in, at times, right? Hey, guys, look, I know it's hard. I know it's hard. I know as a man that, that, you, that you're scattered, that you're experiencing financial and economic persecution. Uh, I, I know that you're losing your homes. I know that you can't get a job. I know that you're being driven away from, from, your, from, uh, from your home, and yet um, there is something else going on here that um, you need to take heart because ultimately um, the, the wicked that are oppressing you um, are, like, like we read last week, fattening themselves for destruction. And so um, let's just remember that as we, as we look at this passage, um, the, what's, what's actually going on um, in the scattered church and, and uh, the temptation, that the, the, the very real temptation to abandon faithfulness to Yahweh, abandon faithfulness to Jesus, so that we can um, ultimately uh, live a comfortable life, have a home, have food on the table. I mean, the basic necessities. 
It's not like these guys were driving around Bentleys, right? They, they just wanted uh, a roof over their head. So let's look at the text. James chapter 5, verses 7 through 12. Dear brothers and sisters, right now, so you remember the pericope or the, the passage right before this, he, he's talking to the, the uh, wicked, the, the, the rich people who are wick, wickedly oppressing uh, the, the, uh, the brothers and sisters in Christ. And, and now he's transitioning to brothers and sisters. So now he's speaking back to um, disciples of Jesus. Dear brothers and sisters, be patient as you wait for the Lord's return. Consider the farmers who patiently waited, who, who patiently wait for the rains in the fall and in the spring. They eagerly look for the valuable harvest to ripen. You too must be patient. Take courage, for the coming of the Lord is near. Don't grumble against each, about each other, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. For look, the judge is standing at the door. For examples of patience and suffering, dear brothers and sisters, look at the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We give great honor to those who endure under suffering. For instance, you know about Job, a man of great endurance. You can see how the Lord was kind to him at the end, for the Lord is full of tenderness and mercy. But most of all, brothers and sisters, never take an oath by heaven or earth or anything else. Just say a simple yes or no so that you will not sin and be condemned. I want to hyper-focus a little bit. Um, so this is, there's obviously a lot there, and I'm not going to cover all of that in 14 minutes. But uh, I do want to hyper-focus in on on uh, one little phrase in that, in that passage, and I want to kind of unpack it for you guys this morning as you go to your groups, and hopefully um, as you go throughout your day, this will kind of be a nugget of truth that, that you can uh, stick with. But I want to focus in on, um, in, in the New Living Translation, um, it says, take courage, right? Um, for the coming of the Lord is near. In, in the... Uh, uh, in the original language, the, 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 uh, the term there is sterizo. Um, it's, a, it's actually an imperative, so it's, it's a sterizate. Uh, but the imperative is um, strengthen your heart. So obviously the, the uh, you know, committee that did the New Living Translation uh, paraphrased that down to, hey, just take courage. But the, but the original text, text says strengthen your heart. When I read that, I was kind of like, man, that's really interesting that, that in the middle of this, that, that there's this, um, hey, consider, consider the farmer, consider the fact that he's waiting for the rain, consider that he's, uh, that he's waiting patiently for the fruit that'll come up when the rain comes, and then he gives a command, um, strengthen your heart. Well, when you look at, um, when you look at the, the actual metaphor that's used there, it's obviously an agrarian metaphor. Uh, James is writing probably predominantly to people who are farmers, um, who are uh, uh, working the land. And, 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 and when I saw that, I was kind of like, hey, you know, because there's a, there's a distinction between, hey, you strengthen your heart um, so that it's, uh, because there's kind of that, okay, well, when someone, is, uh, when someone is down, when someone is oppressed, uh, I, I know this from personal experience, when I'm down and when I'm depressed, well, one of the worst things you can come and tell me is, hey, dude, strengthen yourself, get up, right? Um, can I get an amen there, brothers, all right? And in that moment, it's like, hey, um, dude, I, I don't have any strength. I can't pick myself up. 
So, so don't come and kick me and tell me to strengthen myself. I don't, I don't have any strength to strengthen myself with. And, and so, I, you know, I looked at that and, and, uh, and I was like, man, but I don't think that that's what James is talking about here. Um, I, I think that, I think that you, you, you tie that into um, the coming of the Lord is, is near. Um, uh, and then he goes through these examples of patience and then he reminds us, the Lord is full of tenderness and mercy. And so uh, I just thought, well, well then what, I mean, I, it, it's an imperative. So what does it look like for us to strengthen our hearts? If we have no strength, if we're oppressed like the, like the uh, early church was, then what, what does it look like to strengthen your heart? Well, I think it's two things. I think there's an active component to it for sure. Um, so what does a farmer do? What does a farmer do when he grows a crop? Well, he goes out and he tills his land. Right? He cultivates the ground. And he might even, um, you know, uh, put some fertilizer down. And he plants a seed. And he water, or uh, I'm sorry, he plants a seed. He, he will uh, cultivate that seed. He'll pull the weeds out from among the soil that would choke out the seed. He's paying attention to cultivating an environment by which a seed can grow into a crop. But listen closely. Never once, never once in the history of this world has a farmer ever, ever, ever grown a crop. It's never happened. Never once has a doctor ever, ever, ever healed someone. Not once. Now what the doctor does is manipulates an environment whereby healing can take place. But he is not the one who heals. Never once can a farmer, by his own willpower, grow his crop. What does he need? He needs sunlight and he needs rain. Right? And neither of these things, neither sunlight nor rain, come from him. So I think there's an active component in it that that as we, as we look at this strength in our heart, and, and, and James is pointing to this agrarian metaphor, that, that we look at it and we say, well, I mean, I, I think that there's something for me to do that maybe it's something like cultivate the ground. Like pull the weeds out. Like make sure that the environment that the seed is in is, is in a healthy spot so that when the rain um, comes and the sunshine hits it, that, that, you, that you have given it the best chance possible to succeed, but you are not growing the crop. So when we translate, so, so in that sense, we're, we're doing things uh, very much in an active way. However, um, there is a passive aspect to this as well, and that is, hey, I've cultivated the ground, I've planted the seed, I've fertilized it, I've, I've taken the weeds out, but God, you are the one who sends the rain. And so you actively work to passively receive. I like, I, I just, I like to call this being actively passive. All right, and, and guys, this stands in, um, go back one slide, this stands in, in uh, direct contrast to, chat, to uh, verse 5, right, where the people in verse 5 are, are, are fattening themselves for destruction. And James is encouraging the early church, the ones who are being oppressed, to be actively passive, to, to be active in the sense that, that, look, trusting in the Lord is not something where it's like, well, I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to like trust the Lord. No, I, I think that's a misunderstanding of what trust is. 
It's a misunderstanding of what faith is. This entire book is about, no, faith is something that works itself out in your life. And, and so when James is, is encouraging the, the, the early church, he's saying, hey, don't be like the ones who are um, running to comfort, running to their own materialism, running to, their own, uh, to, to trust in their own strength. They are fattening themselves for destruction. No, you strengthen your heart. You actively do the things that are, that are necessary so that when the rain comes, the crop grows. You put yourself into a position where when God waters you, you grow. There's a guy that uh, has been crazy influential in my life, and I'm actually uh, in school right now um, working uh, uh, toward... Um, working toward a, a degree, and, and he was teaching in, in my program, and then he died. I'm like, Dad, gum it, man. Why are you going to die? Um, uh, but he did, and, and, uh, but that's, dude, dude definitely knew the Lord, so um, that's a good thing. But he wrote a book called The Spirit of the Disciplines, and his name's Dallas Willard. I want to read uh, an excerpt from uh, a friend of mine who wrote a paper on Dallas Willard. Um, he said this. Uh, he said, I, I was... Um, I was reading The Spirit of the Disciplines, right, this book right here, um, as a recovering legalist. I'm afraid that all, of, uh, that all of Dallas's talk on the disciplines went straight into my all-too-recently vacated categories of legalistic Christianity. I was 20 years old at the time, and much of what I wrote in the margins contained the colorful prose of an angry, disillusioned young man who only saw in Dallas's own prose more hoops to jump through to try to get God to like me. Reading the Spirit of the Disciplines was, at the time, further evidence to me that either Christianity did not possess any unique mechanisms of spiritual change or was just another version of legalistic willpower fueled by guilt and shame, or more bleakly, Christianity just simply was not true. The irony of my initial response to the Spirit of the Disciplines is that it would be that very book, as well as the evidential force of Dallas Willard himself, that helped me bring that helped bring me back around to a firm confidence in Jesus and his way of transformation. Here's the danger, guys. As, you, as you're being actively passive, as you're being actively passive, the, the, the danger is that you can so trust in what you're doing. So, man, I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to pray. I'm going to fast. I'm going to spend solitude. I'm going to be quiet. I'm going to do all these things. And if you're looking at it through the lens of, if I do these things, then this will happen. Like a farmer who says, if I till the land, then the rain will come. Right? Then really, that's just a deeper um, manifestation of a deeply habituated trust in yourself. And, and so what I'm saying is that, that the disciplines we practice to be active in the actively passive aspect, the, the disciplines we practice are there solely to, as a means of grace to connect relationally with God. So being actively passive is, is a relational exercise to connect with the Father. And the direct result of staying actively passive is that when you encounter God, then you gain perspective. This is not a quick or a clean process. This is not something that's like, okay, I, I'm with the Lord, right? Uh, see Matthew 28, 20, like, like we said but, uh, before. Okay, I'm with God, so my life should just be fixed all of a sudden. I should just gain this eternal perspective and just stay there. No, um, and in fact, James gives us uh, you know, two examples of this, that, that the prophets... In, in uh, chapter 5, verse 10, hey, consider the prophets. Well, what, would, what did the prophet's life look like? 
right? I wish I had time to read, but I, I can't. Elijah. Elijah goes and kills a bunch of prophets of Baal, and then what does he do? He runs for his life. He's scared out of his mind. He sits under a tree and asks God to kill him. What? Right? Jeremiah. Y'all ever heard of Jeremiah? The weeping prophet? Lord! Ugh! We just lost everything. Ezekiel, same thing. I mean, the, the prophets are living through very tumultuous times, and yet in the midst of the, the conflict, in the midst of, of the things that are going, the chaos that's going on around them, they are speaking in the name of the Lord. It's fascinating. And, and, and at the end of the day, I mean, even with Elijah, Elijah kills the prophets of Baals, he takes off, and this happens up in Jezreel. If you know geography in Israel, this happens all the way up in Galilee, by the Sea of, Ga- by the, uh, sea of Galilee, by Lake Kinneret. And he, this happens, and he runs all the way down to Mount Sinai. That's crazy. That's a long way. I'm like, dude, get some, get some good boots, you know, dead gum, man. So uh, he runs all the way, but he goes to Mount Sinai. Why? To be with the Lord. And there the Lord, the Lord meets him there, and he gains perspective. Hey, Elijah, you're not the only one. Job, same thing. Um, uh, Job, you guys know the story of Job. He's all kinds of chaos going on in his life, and, and, and he's uh, suffering under intense oppression. And, and, at the end of, uh, and Job even questions the Lord. He's like, where are you in all of this? Um, he is... His, his heart is heavy. And so perspective is not something that's just this golden thing that's ever before you all the time. It's something that you work in, that you cultivate as you relationally connect with God. And, and he is continually bringing the perspective to your mind. And, and Job even says, um, uh, he's, he, he questions what God is, is doing in his life. And, and it's a fascinating passage um, in, in Job chapter 42. If you want to turn there, you can. Um, he says, he goes on to lecture the Lord, and the Lord finally shows up, right? And, and uh, says, all right, Job, I've got it, sit down. So, so, Job, so, so the Lord puts Job in his place, and then Job says something really fascinating. He says, I know that you can do all things. This is chapter 42, verse 2. I know that you can do all things, that no plan of yours can be thwarted. You ask, um, who is this that obscures my counsel without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now, and I will speak, and I will question you, and you answer me. Now listen closely. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Right, guys? Look, there, there's going to be, uh, you know, as we translate this into, into today, what's going on today in your life? Um, what, what is the oppression that's, that's had? It may be economic, it may be financial, it may be relational. I don't know what it is. You fill in the blank. You're, you, you know yourself. Um, and, and what I would tell you is what, what, what you need is perspective. Perspective to endure. And that perspective to strengthen your heart, that perspective can only come from one place. And, and, and it's, uh, to be more accurate, it can only come from one person, right? And so our job to be actively passive is to go and be with him. Um, there is uh, there's a, one of my favorite um, passages in, in all the Bible. And I want you to turn there with me because I'm going to read the whole thing and we're going to go two minutes over, so I apologize. But I want you to see this. 
Psalm chapter 73. This is Asaph. And I'll just read. I'm reading for the New International Version, so if your version's a little different, sorry. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. You think the early church that James is writing to can identify with that? Yeah, I think so. They don't have any struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the burdens common to man. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They're, They're fattening themselves for destruction. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. The the evil conceits of their minds know no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. In their arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? This is what the wicked are like. Always carefree. They increase in wealth. And and then Asaph, in the middle of of this, he he turns and he's brutally honest, which I love. Oh my gosh, I love that. Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. In other words, he's saying, I've been actively passive and what has it gotten me? Nothing. It's gotten me nothing. Nothing. All day long, I've been plagued, I've been punished every morning. And then he turns and he reminds, he's reminded. He says, if I had said, I will speak this, then I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all of this, it was oppressive to me. Until I entered the sanctuary of God. How awesome is that? until I entered into the presence of the Lord. And then I understood their final destiny. Surely you placed them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by by terrors as a dream when when one awakes. So when you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasy. When my heart was grieved and my spirit was embittered. I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you, yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterward you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And the earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart. He is my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it's good to be with God. I made the sovereign Lord my refuge, and I will tell of his deeds. 
Guys, it's not enough for me to stand up here and tell you, strengthen your heart. You cannot do it. But what you can do is go be with the one who will give you your strength. So go be with him in his name. Amen.